I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Uh, Chris, what Jesse. are we going to be talking about today on this wonderful, uh, beautiful day? We are going to be talking about the liturgy. Great. Specifically, specifically, Jesse, we're going to talk about the cosmic and cultural foundations of the Eucharist. So long before we even talk about Revelation or Old Testament or Jesus, New Testament, uh, history of the church, Eucharistic miracles, anything like that, we're going to look at some of the roots of the Eucharist in creation and in human culture. All right. Let's wait, 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 wait. It. How about those chiefs? We have to say chiefs. Chiefs. Okay. Done. Chris, well, we didn't charge the topic to now. Know, we didn't want people to know when we recorded this, Dennis. <laughs> I didn't say how long it's been after the Super Bowl, but this is our first acknowledgement of it. So chiefs. Yeah. Yeah. I also just came back from South Carolina from St. Clair of Assisi Parish. They're the ones using our entire season on Sacrosanct Concilium to help train their RCIA people and had a great, great day of wow. talks with them and saw their awesome new church that they're building. What did you talk about? Island. Did you talk about talked on beauty in one on architecture? And then we had a panel with two musicians and talked about chant and propers and Orientum and all kinds of things. Great pastor, Father West, and great uh, staff there. Uh, really great visit. So if you live in that area, go to St. Clair of Assisi, become a parishioner. They're on the ball. All right, I'm done monopolizing the conversation now. Chris, now I can monopolize the conversation. All right. Well, okay. Uh, quiz, Dennis. I'll throw it back to you. Why do you believe in God? No, we already did that one. Uh, Jesse and Dennis, what's your favorite paragraph in a catechism of the Catholic Church? Like, my I know number. it's hard. Well, I don't know. You can just by general topic, I guess. I mean, you have a favorite. Probably the definition so of many sacraments an efficacious sign. <laughs> yeah, that's a course, good one. Old the one about uh, participation of the people of God in the work of God. Is that like in eleven hundreds somewhere? Uh, and, but the one that saved us from the nineteen seventy eight bishops document environment in art and Catholic worship. Mm-hmm is the tiny little section on architecture that it says it is more a church building is more than just general meeting place but is a sign of christians living in a place with humans and mm-hmm. god reconciled in christ that's yeah. that's my favorite there really are a lot of good ones you know i was thinking about this the other day you know everybody's got some comment to make on sacrosanctum concilium which you mentioned before and you know there's good bad and the ugly uh, on all sorts of things but the catechism, I don't hear too many people, um, it, you know, being down on the catechism. I'm sure there are some. It really seems to have is, is uh, withstanding the test of time. So all these other documents have uh, a certain degree of criticism, but uh, the catechism doesn't seem to, at least the liturgy part. You didn't anyway. tell us your, your favorite. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Uh, my favorite of the many uh, good paragraphs is 1075. And 1075 is about mystagogical catechesis. So, so part two begins on 1066, and this is at 1075. So if my liturgist math is right, this is uh, fewer than 10 paragraphs into part two. 
where the catechism is going to lay out how it's going to treat things, right? How she's going to treat, how it's going to treat liturgy and sacraments. And that is to say, mystagogically. So I know we did a podcast in the past called, what was that called, Jesse? Mr. Mr. Gaji or something like that? Mr. Goji. Mr. Yeah, Gaji. Okay. Yeah. So you'll all remember, as uh, hopefully our listeners will, what mystagogy is. But it tells us in uh, 1075, it uh, proceeds from the visible to the invisible, from the sign to the thing signified, from the sacraments to the mysteries. So yes. most of our formation at the uh, LI uh, from Dennis, and of course Dennis was formed in the LI too, and Jesse and me, was uh, the kind of one of the founding uh, principles from Cardinal George way back when, and Monsignor Mannion, was that the, the, the approach that we would take would be a sacramental one. So you can study the liturgy from history, from law, from pastoral practice to all sorts of different things. But principally, it's a, it's a sacramental thing where buildings or music or words or, or Chiefs fans wearing Chiefs fans. fans wearing jerseys, then yeah. you know what their inner spiritual reality is all about. Yeah. Well, Anyway, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, you see these, smell these, taste these, touch these, hear these external things, and they bring along with them an internal reality. That's the that's the the sacramental approach. But what mystagogy does is it takes you from that external to the internal. Okay, Jesse, ask me what my second favorite uh, paragraph of the Catechism is. Christopher, what is your yeah. second favorite paragraph from the Catechism? Uh, it's obviously 1145, because in paragraphs uh, 1145, beginning there to 1152, it tells you how to go about moving from the sign to the thing signified, from the sacrament to the mystery, from the outward to the inward. It tells you action, how to do sac- a mystagogical catechesis. So what 1145 says is uh, sacramental celebrations woven from signs and symbols and in keeping with the divine pedagogy of salvation, mm. the, si- the meaning of these signs and symbols is rooted in these five different categories. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay. okay. You know what they are? I know some of them. Okay. Let's see. Uh, what the- yeah, go. Signs taken up by Christ is one. Right? Okay. Yep. Yep. That's not the first one. The first one is like nature, nature and creation yep. is one of them. Yep. Yep. And then something with the old law in the Old Testament. Yep. Mm-hmm. Things given by God in the Old Testament. And then mm-hmm. taking up something by, by the new law, the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. More. Yeah. Well, more. there's a couple more. So the first one, uh, as you re- that you identified, Dennis, is nature, cosmos, creation. So yes. you you see an outward side. Let's say it's a it's a church edifice, or it's a window. Or it's uh, it's an altar, okay? Well, nature itself is going to give some meaning to that, whether you're Catholic or not, Christian or not, a believer or not. It's just nature is going to going to tell you something. The second category that they mentioned here is human culture, right? So oh, yeah. a lot of what, yeah, that's a big one. What a lot of what human, uh, uh, you know, what people do, right, uh, gives some meaning. Right, whether they're Catholics or not, just human nature and human culture gives meaning to our sacramental yes. signs. I use the example of the triumphal arch for the front of a church all the time. Uh, the, yeah. the big arch that we erected for the emperors and Roman things didn't come from God, didn't come from nature, but it was a sign of victorious entry into the city. And then you put that little door, big door, little door on a mm-hmm. church front, and it's a sign of triumphal entry into the heavenly city, which the church building signifies. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Something else, but that one works really well. It does. A third category is things in the Old Testament. Fourth one is Christ and in the life of the church. And the fifth one, Dennis, I can't believe you didn't name this one. Uh, things the liturgy guys talk about. Oh, yeah. I think you talk about this all the time. I do. 
eschatology in heaven. Heaven. Oh, yeah. so oh he does we, talk about that. Yeah, a lot of what we do in the liturgy takes its meaning because it anticipates what heaven's like, right? So church buildings and decoration and things like that. They're, they they're anticipations of what you know John saw in the book of Revelation, things like that. So mm-hmm. what's what's good about this mystagogical catechesis when you do it this way, right? It's it's more than simply well the rubrics say that or you know Pope uh, Leo the whatever his name was uh, said that or we've always done it. Those are important things, not to be discounted, but it really gets to the roots of what these signs and symbols mean. Okay, so as we go through these years of the of the uh, Eucharistic revival, you know, well the the Eucharist is like the sacramental sign and symbol per excellentia. Awesome, mm. right? So, where does it get its meaning? Could you do a type of mystagogical catechesis? Oh, yeah, yeah, on the Eucharist, where I mean, you see and you taste right outward signs of bread and wine. And how are you led from what's on the surface, what appears, to what is the reality, which is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ, the heavenly wedding banquet, uh, eternal nourishment, and these things like that. And so what I want to do in this uh, podcast is look at those first two categories. What contributions do the cosmos, creation, and nature bring to our how we understand the Eucharist? And also, how does human culture, whether it's Catholic or not, believers or not, what is human, what do you human beings, what do they contribute to our meaning of the Eucharist? All right? All and right. That's where we're going. Okay. So, You're so smart, the, Chris. Oh, yeah, very. You haven't heard him talk about it yet, so let's <laughs> yeah. let's just wait. Let's very see how it goes. Uh, jury's still out. Okay, so um, a couple of things in in the in the section on how to do mystagogy from uh, the Catechism at uh, number eleven forty seven, it names these things invisible creation that lead us to an encounter with God. And in this paragraph, it mentions light and darkness, wind and fire, water and earth, tree and its fruit. Okay, and these things are called hierophanies hierophanies mm. what's the you're an etymology guy dennis hieros you know priestly holy yeah mm-hmm. yep and fanane is like uh epiphany right it's to, to yeah, show yeah. or to shine yeah. bingo i wasn't i wasn't yeah. sure about that oh ah, well. yeah about yeah that. So hieros is uh, like a hierophant is a, is an old fashioned term for priest or hieroglyphics or priestly writings. So hieros and fa is uh, yeah to shine. So like uh, uh, like epiphany or photograph or phantasm things like this. Phosphorus. Uh, these are all means showing. So a, a hierophany is a sacred showing. And these things exist in the natural world, light and darkness. They say something. They reveal something about God, wind and fire, uh, all these things. These are hierophanies. Well, I want to look at some natural and cultural hierophanies with the Eucharist, specifically about bread and wine and eating and drinking. Why are these things, whether you're Catholic or not, whether you're in that 31% who believes in the real presence of Jesus or not, whether you're a Christian or not, why do these things just on the plane of nature and culture reveal and manifest the reality of Jesus? Okay. All right. So he's well, reminding me of a Jean Hani idea already, right? <laughs> oh, is Jean Hani, famous okay. author. But okay. yeah. he, he talks about the Eucharist. We talked about him in the episode previously, but he also says it's already a miracle that plants give us life. 
like plants come out of the minerals of the ground and they become wheat or whatever, and then we eat them and we live. Like that in itself is already a miraculous conversion of of plants to us. And so it's this fundamental reality of our uh, even our human existence. Yeah, it's and it, you know you've talked about the the some of the good things about being on the farm, and it's true, it's great living on this farm. Um, but you, re- if unless you live on the farm, you can really lose sight of that, right? Because I mean, I know Dennis, you uh, you grow plants or used to when you were at, mm-hmm. uh, on the line. Before um, I moved in an apartment, <laughs> yeah. but you used to have window boxes and things like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, you, you, that kind of keeps you rooted in, uh, in you that that would be a truth yeah. that you would be more familiar with than. And some blight comes through and kills all your tomatoes, mm-hmm. and you say, "Man, if I had to support my family through the winter on this, we would be dead." It's really hard. To grow food that you could live on. Think for a moment, though. Let's look. Let's look at uh, a grain of wheat. Okay, so that becomes bread. So first of all, now you're in Kansas. Now, what's uh, what's one of the main uh, main crops in uh, Kansas? Corn. Well, corn. Yeah, Ooh, it's a little, a little dry for corn, but they do grow corn here. Wheat certainly out west because yeah. it's drier, and also uh, soybeans. A lot of soybeans here. Sunflowers. It's the sunflowers. Sun- oh, sunflowers, of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah. But talk about uh, the wheat out west. Do you know when they plant wheat? They plant it in the fall, don't they? And they do through the winter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. called a. It's called a winter a winter, wheat. winter wheat. Yeah, and so uh, a crop like this is they sow it in the fall and it starts to to grow a little bit, and then when it gets too cold, it kind of goes dormant, and it stays that way until the springtime when it starts to uh, grow again. Now, for, for you in Kansas and those. Nebraska and the Dakotas and things like that. It's usually not harvested. I think maybe till August or uh, September. But in the Promised Land, this would uh, this wheat, this winter crop, barley would be another one, would be co- start to become ripe around the springtime of the year. So you know, just to to layer on what Hani said, uh, Dennis, it's not simply a miracle that plants give us food, but think about this particular type of plant that's going to go and make the Eucharist. It comes to life in the springtime of the year, at least when in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, you know, kind of the world comes back to life. So there's this layered, there's this additional meaning to this particular type of plant versus say like a rutabaga or something like that, that wheat <laughs> starts to have with us, right? So it's the springtime harvest. And think too, again, think about the, by the time you get say uh, a, a piece of an altar bread to use at mass, think about its history. Right. So you take a grain, one of these grains of wheat, and you plant the seed, you bury it in the ground. Right. So it's like you entomb it, I suppose, in the earth. And what happens? It starts dies, to but dies, it and brings it's, new life. Yeah, it starts to like germinate and it Christ starts to rise. Yeah, exactly. And then when it gets fully um mature, what do we do with it? Cut his little head off. We kill it. Harvest. Yeah, we, we harvest it and we grind it all up. We d- we dissolve it and pulverize it. That's an and immolation, we, molare to grind. Right? All right. And we mix a little water with it. And so then it seems, you know, kind of dead. But then what happens? Well, we it starts yeast this, in there. Starts to resurrect. Yeah. It starts to rise and becomes baked. And what happens when the, the bread is fully baked? You put it in your mouth and you crush it again with teeth. You grind it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. your molars. Yeah. So think about, you know, just the kind of the lifetime of bread. It goes from grain to death and it rises and then it's harvested and it's crushed and then it rises and then it's crushed between your teeth. And so talk about a natural hierophany 
that already by the time it gets to be bred, it's been through this series of deaths and resurrections. Yeah. Pretty cool. If you huh? add raisins to it, man, uh, and butter. Dennis, Dennis. <laughs> yeah. Not okay. for yes, mass, just it. for Irish yes. soda bread. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's one way to ruin literally anything is to put raisins in it. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this before. You think you're getting that chocolate Especially oatmeal cookie. raisin cookies. So oh, good. It's a lie. Anyway, um, I think, too, these these terms might be a little bit dated. I think, Jess, did you say you were born in the 80s? Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Unofficially. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they were talking. They don't were talking like that in the eighties. I don't think they. Maybe they were in the seventies, Dennis. But terms like bread. What did it mean if uh, to have bread? That was a another term for what? Money. Money. Right. Oh Oops. yeah. Same with dough. Got any dough? Yeah. Some dough. Uh, Breadwinner. It's like mm-hmm. so. All of these. All like of these Marguerite. Terms, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's actually the bread grower. Um, so bread, this is why bread is in itself a natural hierophany, because it symbolizes life, it symbolizes a new springtime, it symbolizes death and resurrection, it signifies things of value, right? This is long before God even revealed anything, at least in terms of revelation, or Jesus came along the scene, and already bread is showing itself to be something sacred. Kind of like the show bread. Ooh, Am I getting one. too ahead of yourself? That's, yeah, yeah. See, this is what I think is cool. What the catechism does is we're not even talking about Old Testament or Bible or Revelation or anything. See, already nature is telling us something about what the Eucharist means. And human culture is telling us something about what the Eucharist means. Think about the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist when the priest says, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this bread to offer, this wine to offer, fruit of the earth, and what else? Human hands, right? So this is nature and humanity coming together to make the material that can be can reveal God to us. Well, let's uh, talk about wine. Oh, okay? well, go ahead. I, I just like I'm picking up on this. I don't know why this is the first time I thought about mm-hmm. this, but you have this this gift, this offering from God, this fruit of the land, mm-hmm. and then you have our you know, contribution, human hands. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden this then gets elevated to God again in the mm-hmm. Eucharist mm-hmm. and then perfected and sent back down. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. Yep. Yeah. In fact, we could even do, maybe we should. We're, I would just thought we'd talk about bread and wine here, but we could talk about lambs too. Right? You know how the, they are born in the springtime of the year and all these other hey. things. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good, a callback to one of my favorite episodes <laughs> ever. If you are in need of a good Liturgy Guys episode, you should go listen to uh, Let's Get Metaphysical. You will not regret it. <laughs> oh, I love making you happy, Jesse. It's so Sometimes it's easy. It's you know, always easy. But I mean, just this term cult. What does it mean? What does the term cult mean? Psycho, <laughs> demagogue, no. evil. My daughter's in a cult. Drink no, no, okay. that's a little derivative. But uh, yeah. initially, a cult denotes the relationship with the gods. And it's no accident that if this is, it shares the root with agriculture mm-hmm. because the relationship that we have with the gods is in large part based on uh, the fruit of the earth. Uh, I don't remember us explaining this. Uh, something that you, you all remember, Sister uh, es- Esther Mary Nicole, Mary mm-hmm. Esther Nicole. And do you remember what her uh, doctoral work was in? Did you ever come? In? Did you ever know? Maybe you never knew. In the I first did place. know at one time, but yeah. I don't know now. Yeah. It was agriculture. 
Yeah. Yeah. She was, she knew about farming. I, I don't, I'm sorry if you're listening out there, um, sister, but I don't remember more specifically what that was. And she tells this story, maybe Father John Grant told this story. She got to meet Pope Benedict once and he asked her, you know, what she studied. She said, agriculture. And he says, I said you you'll make the perfect liturgist because there's such a consonance between cult and agriculture. Because it's such, it's just trying to make you happy again, Jesse. Always okay. Always. Right, so the relationship you know between cult and agriculture is not accidental. But let's talk about right. wine for a little bit. Okay. What does wine wait, 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 Chris? Yes, go John ahead. Honey has something to say about this too. Okay. He has a book about uh, divine craftsmen, and he says anything that we can to to grow anything requires learning the rules of creation that God has established. Right? Uh, you can't plant seed in uh, water and hope they don't rot. You can't not have soil. I mean, you can try things, you know, and you can have hydroponics or whatever. But basically, things work the way they work, and we mm-hmm. can't grow anything unless we learn the patterns of the universe that God has mm-hmm. established and imitate oh, them so and good. figure them out. So, so it's in. You know, all the science we do with genetic modification, all that stuff, we're all working within the system, pre-established system. All right. That's awesome. Back to you, Chris. Okay. All right. I want to talk about wine a little bit. One of the other uh, material Don't you elements. always. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, different kind of wine. Whoa. Sorry. That was me whining. <laughs> oh, wow. okay. Oh, man. <laughs> no, when you come from New York, it's more like this. What? Jerry? Okay. George? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so wine. What does wine signify on a human plane? Okay, well, it signifies, among other things, vigor and vitality, and yes. even festivity. Yeah. yeah. So, if you want a little shot of courage, uh, Dennis, you know, before you enter into the fray, you know, take for me, it's coffee. But yeah, wine too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, wine. Think about uh, somebody who's dis- who you would call very spirited. Okay, and we even call oh, yes. some liquor stores are called spirit. Spirits. Spirit Spirits, world, wasn't yeah. there a spirit world? Uh, that's a famous. Uh, oh, that's they sell Halloween costumes, Chris. Do they? Oh, there's a spirit world. I think it's called. The, the etymological connection is there either way. Yes. Yeah, Jesse. Okay. Um, it uh, signifies a kind of liberation from the mundane. You know, and this can be for good or bad. I mean, so if you're, you know, your team just lost the Super Bowl or something like that, right? You might have uh, some spirits, uh, yeah. some wine to help you forget. Or they don't—they don't call it liquid courage when you're out at a at a bar or something either. Do right? <laughs> there you want to go. go talk to some lady across the room? <laughs> have a shot of liquid courage. There you go. Right. Or if your team just won the Super Bowl, similarly, it's a sign of uh, celebration and uh, kind of elevating yourself above and beyond sort of that natural day-to-day humdrum uh, plane. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, Wine signifies uh, communion. So I don't know if this is true or not, um, but, you know, when, I, but I, they say that when you clink your glasses together and you all say cheers, Mm-hmm. Apparently, the originally this was imagine one glass, okay? and you would all pass it around, and you'd have a drink, and you'd have a drink. That's not appropriate for COVID, Chris. No, no, that's this is definitely a pre-COVID uh, thing. But this putting the glasses together and saying cheers is uh, apparently some side of uh, vestige of that. But it's true though. I mean, if you were gonna if you were gonna drink out of a stranger's glass or walk up to a to a stranger, or even not even a stranger, maybe somebody you know, but who's not in your family, right? And you say, hey, can I just, can I have a drink of that out of your glass? Uh, that person will probably say, uh, yeah, no. And yeah. you wouldn't even do that. Or right? share so, a toothbrush with someone. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys See, do that so, on the farm? 
Uh, yeah. See, but you, 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 well, I was just going to say, Chris, one of my favorite mm-hmm. stories is I heard the story of uh, Bill Murray. He was at some like roadside, you know, like McDonald's, like on a highway stop. And he went up to some guy, stole one of his fries, dipped it in ketchup, <laughs> ate it and, and looked at him and said, nobody will ever believe you and walked away. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Isn't that a great story? But I mean, you know, that's a, see, that's unbelievable. Like you just said, you know, something like that. But if you were going to share food off somebody else's plate or share liquid out of somebody else's glass, okay, Catholic or non-Catholic, right? This just signifies there's a level of communion and intimacy Mm -hmm. that you have with that person, or you do now uh, Mm -hmm. because you've done that. Or you're, uh, What's that called when you have to taste the food before the king eats it? Yeah, the taster to, to make sure it's not poison. Yep. Mm-hmm. Hmm. There's a custom here at Benedictine um, at a wedding when they go to one of their friends' weddings. They all, all the guys leave the reception, you know, close by, stand in a circle and they pass a bottle around. They, they right. walk in a circle and sing some song and then they sing whatever until they're all done with the gym beam or whatever it is. And that then it's done, but that's like we are that close of friends. We're sharing the bottle, and finishing it off together. See, but I mean, what does I mean? What do these reflections on wine, alcohol, spirits have? Pot? What can they possibly have to do with the Eucharist? Well, uh, yeah, Jesse. Romano Guardini said that uh, we have this uh, sober inebriation in the mass. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But no, think about this. Just all these reflections we've made really have nothing to do with the mass, but that wine gives you vigor and vitality mm-hmm. and courage and liberation from the mundane and celebration and communion. And wine is signifies well, something of value. Take a cue from looking up the etymology. As early as the 13th century was an animating or vital principle, and it's related to what spirit, spiritus, this notion of spirit, right? Okay. Um, and that, uh, it's life it has to do with life. Right. So in the sense, the Eucharist or the alcohol wine, you know, fills us with animation, with life, with love, with festivity. Mm-hmm. I think these are good analogies to grace or right? this is what they do. What Christ uh, life does for Dennis, us. Dennis, I don't think they're ding, analogies ding, 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 at all. They're not analogies. Or if they are the main, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the main meaning to which the other things are analogous is the Eucharist. I, there, what what happens? What we're describing, you know, with with the fellas from Benedict and passing the gym beam around, right? Or Bill Murray sharing food off somebody's plate, or you know, uh, having a couple beers after your team wins the Super Bowl. See, these are very human things that God ha- God has put into our nature, and He's going to bring those right along with them when He elevates bread and wine and eating and drinking to a supernatural plane. And they're not going to be lost. They're going to be perfected. And you're going to become supernaturally courageous and supernaturally joyful and achieve a supernatural communion, so on and so on and so on. Right. Um, So I, you know, I just, this is a, when you talk about, do you believe in the real presence? Something like that. Um, It's more than just well, yes, because Jesus says so or something like that. I mean, that's Jesus, the ultimate instigator and author of the sacraments. But there's so much more going on beneath the surface and around this central core that I think if we can be aware of, you might think, well, oh, okay, now I start to get it, that this is what the Eucharist means and this is what the Eucharist does. And it's just just multi, 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 layer, layer, layered. And uh, anyway, 
Let's go to the last category before we wrap this up. So we talked about bread. We've talked about wine. Let's talk about just the nature of eating and drinking, eating and Mm. drinking. All humans do it, whether they're Catholic or not. Why is eating and drinking a natural hierophany? Why is it a manifestation of the divine? What do you think? Without it, we die, right? Yeah, you need it. You need it to live. Yeah. So, I mean, just being hungry and the fact that you need food and drink is a sign that you ain't God of Mm, your limitations. Right. Not complete in yourself. Right. You need something from outside of yourself if you want to to survive. And even think, you know, there's difference between you know being hungry and starving, you know, or those days where, you know we can all probably get to lunch without having breakfast or maybe even to dinner or something like that. But you know, when Ash Wednesday come rolls around, yep. it's it's like nine 30 in the morning and I'm like, and oh. you're already starving. I know <laughs> no, if you're busy, you can crazy. skip eating all day and not mind. As soon as you have to fast, it's the worst oh, thing ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just the fact that we have to eat or drink signifies that uh, we didn't make ourselves and we're not going to sustain ourselves uh, forever. What you need is a gift from outside of yourself to sustain you. And that gift is either going to be the gift of, you know, a burrito or a ham sandwich or uh, so of a lamb, something like that. It's going to be the gift from your mom or from the, the cooks in the refectory. And ultimately it's going to be because they didn't, you can't create your own wheat kernel, it's going to be a gift from God. So if you see this too, I think is difficult because for most Americans these days, food comes from drive-through windows and packages and gas stations and refectories and restaurants and stuff like that. But to, you know, to step back and just consider the, the nature of hunger and thirst and food and drink it, Mm -hmm. you know, you scratch surface a little bit, there's a lot more to it there. And you know, the term hangry, right? What is it? Hangry. Is that like hungry? It's hungry, but your your blood sugar is low, so you get angry. Okay. Oh, and no. Your wife, has, your wife has to say, Chris, have you eaten yet today? I think, you know, you're a little hangry. It's kind of, a, uh, you know, it's a young person word, Jesse probably. You know you know that word, Jesse, yeah? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, Jesse, yeah. I, Jesse is very quickly approaching middle age, I think. <laughs> well... <laughs> Hey, wait, you guys are, if I'm middle-aged, then what are you guys? Okay, never mind, never mind. We're, yeah, but you know, some of the, Thomas and others will talk about, we have other desires for things like beauty, for truth, for goodness, right? So we have a, a hunger in the mind for truth, and we're not satisfied until we get it. We're sort of hangry for the truth, and then we get it, and we say, oh yeah, that's it, right? So this is another bodily dimension. It's like, mm. yeah, I need food and water or I die, but I also mm. need truth. And without it, I just feel unsatisfied and sort of intellectually hangry. You know, uh, hangry. You, uh, Chris, you were talking Bandy. about how how you know the way we consume food or you know buy mm-hmm. food today. Uh, there is something special about like if you have a garden and you're growing something and you're making a salad or you're doing something with something that you've had. I mean, you're you're on a farm, so like you're taking part in some of the work that you've done. Um, you know, when I was in my you know, twenties, I started to brew my own beer and it was not great beer, but I, I made it myself. And so I, 
I valued it a lot higher mm-hmm. because of all the work and time that you put in in something like that. And so uh, I think there's a connection there too. The, the quality yeah. of work or the intentionality of, and the participation of that, uh, you know, goes higher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. A couple more reflections on the phenomenology of uh, eating and drinking. Yeah, let's go. Uh, you know, would you, uh, it, it's, it signifies also, I would say discovery. So let's say you're going to take a trip. Dennis, you travel a lot, especially overseas. I know you, mm-hmm. you're kind of a super taster and things like that. Mm-hmm. When most people either recount the trips they've been on, that time we went to Mexico or that time we went to Italy or that time we went to Vietnam or something like that, it seems, there's the sites they talk about. But almost inevitably, one of the things they talk about is... The Booty bathrooms. Drink. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually the bathrooms, Jesse. But no, when I travel f- overseas, yeah. I come back with pictures with no people in them and uh, no memories of the food. But that's <laughs> me. <laughs> You're not I take pictures yet. of buildings. Yeah, yeah he, he's, yeah, he looks at architecture. Come on. Chris. Yeah, I know. I know. But I said most people, most people, yes. right? right you, it's, the, it's the memories of the food, right? Or what you want to eat once you go. Oh, when you go to. When you go to Boston, when you go to uh, Frankfurt, whatever, you've got to go eat or drink this, right? Yes. So, so I had such eating good carbonara, carbonara in Rome this summer oh, it was like great. eight euros every night. I got the same thing. It was so wow. oh, so what's oh, what's right. not to like? Bacon, oh, good. Yeah. eggs, good yeah. pasta, Butter, good garlic, parmesan. good. Oh my god! See, but this wasn't just any bacon and and pasta, but this was in Rome. So mm-hmm. it was just, mm, it's just that much better, right? So it signifies uh, discovery. And even now, Jesse, you have little children yet too. I mean, when your little baby begins to begins to learn how to crawl, what do they do? They're scooting around the kitchen floor doing what? Probably not in your house because I know Kim is a <laughs> rather fastidious. In uh, eating yeah. crumbs? What? Yeah. They try to put things in their mouth. Theo yeah. ate a sticker the other day, so more. still awesome. waiting for that one to come out. So. Right. Yeah, see, so this is what this is how kids discover their world is by eating Legos and bugs and stickers and old food. Chewing on their shoes. Yes, right. So what food does is it it also signifies discovering another world. Almost a fort. It's almost like a foretaste of a future world that you will be inhabiting. Uh, it also signifies. Now imagine. I don't know if you knew this or not. Uh, uh, Dennis, but uh, uh, there were three O'Brien weddings this coming summer. No three. way. Yes. Who's yes. Getting married. So, so shout out to Seamus, Barbara, and Bernadette oh O'Brien gosh. all getting married this summer. The thing is, they're only going to have the wedding mass. None of them are going to have receptions. Really? No, not really. Can oh. you imagine though? <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I'd imagine they only have the reception. The wedding mass. <laughs> yeah. No, I, so, I mean, it signifies food, especially together, is just, this is how you celebrate. This is how you mark uh, festivity, especially something like this, especially wedding banquets, right? Mm-hmm. On the, Whether you're, they're Catholic wedding banquet, banquets, that you go to Vegas, whatever it is, there's going to be this food element. And, and if they can't get enough people to come to the reception, they're supposed to go out into the shrubs and the streets and mm-hmm. bring as many people as they can, right? Because it signifies festivity, yeah. Yeah, you know, yes, I have this yes, slide, yes, yes, this yes, slide yes. in one of my talks, Chris, I've been using for years. It's just this picture of this husband and wife at their wedding, and they have all the food on the table. I have no idea who these people are. And for 10 years, I've been showing their wedding picture to the world. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> More than 10 years, I think. Did you find them? I, I know that picture. I've seen that yeah. presentation a couple of times. Uh, mm-hmm. real good. There's a watermelon with a sombrero, and there's a thing, a honeydew <laughs> in the shape of a swan, and there's a palm tree in the background. It's like, this is this is the wedding feast. It's the heavenly wedding feast, but it's uh, how we do it here yeah. on Earth. Well, and especially because uh, eating and drinking signifies unity, right? And this is what a wedding is about, you know, the two becoming one. And, you know, even think about the first date that uh, you went on, uh, Jesse, or anybody out there. I mean, it probably involved going to dinner, right? Yeah. Uh, involved eating. Um, so, and it's, I don't know, it's just all of these things, bread, wine, and now eating and drinking, right? To eat or drink just on the natural plate. This has nothing to do yet with the mass. It signifies your limitation, that you need something to be given, gifted to you from outside of yourself to survive and thrive, that eating and drinking signifies the discovery of something else, of new worlds. It signifies festivity. It signifies unity. Here's a silly example, but you can't just eat anything with a beard-mustache combination that I have, right? So like ice cream cones or notoriously bad uh, uh, buffalo wings with uh, blue cheese sauce. You just can't eat those in public. So to, to even to for somebody with a beard like this to eat in public signifies a degree of intimacy. <laughs> like, okay, Marguerite, when we go eat, you got to help me make sure I keep myself uh, presentable on all this. Right? But mm. all of these things on the natural level, all right, God's going to take and elevate them to the supernatural so that when you eat and drink, at mass in the Eucharist, right? It's going to signify this relationship that you have with the gods, this foretaste of another world, going to a ba- wedding banquet, unity with each other and with God, that this gift of the Eucharist is something that you yourself cannot make and you can't survive and thrive without it. So those are just some reflections. These aren't all of them, but just some of the reflections on the cosmic and cultural foundations of the Eucharist. So notice, we haven't even talked about Old Testament foreshadows. We haven't talked about the Last Supper or the words of institution. We haven't talked about the book of Revelation. And already, Temple the Eucharist, of yeah, already the Eucharist has all of this meaning that I think the more we can appreciate that, the more we'll appreciate the reality, which the Eucharist is. Well, that's just dandy, Chris. Thank you. You should run a worship office, Chris. Give talks on public somewhere. I think we need to. Well, this is my takeaway from this entire thirty-minute discourse: is that we yes. need to get Chris like a beard bib, so that he can go to places <laughs> and like protect his beard, and he can eat what he wants. I'm that'd concerned. Be cool. Tie it right under your lower lip, around your back, a little bit, right under your. That'd yeah. be good. Hey, Agnes, there's a product. Yeah, my Agnes uh, got me a little coffee cup once, and it has a little bar across the the bottom of it. So when you drink, it keeps your your mustache back. So. Yeah, otherwise it's just it's uh, an occasion of humiliation to eat and drink publicly. You can only do it with your friends and those who you well, trust Well, Maybe lot. that's the price to pay for having such a manly beard, I Being guess. Being so good looking. Yeah, it's it's a cross in some ways, but hey, it's my cross. All right. Speaking of your cross, uh should you should we answer an allergy question that inevitably yes. Chris will probably have to answer for us? Yes, 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 yes. All right. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. 
All right. This uh, question comes uh, from Rudiger, who's actually a long, long fan of ours uh, here. His name is so, Rex, Rudiger, Rex Rudiger, isn't it? Rex Rudiger, yeah. Sometimes we don't like to say his name. This, uh, Rex is a longtime listener of the Liturgy Guys, unfortunately for him. Uh, huh. He says, our, our parish is currently preparing for the Eucharistic Revival uh, parish year, kicking off on Corpus Christi this June. We are working with another local parish to plan a joint Eucharistic procession in which each parish will start from its own church and process toward a middle point in the public square where we plan to hold adoration and benediction in witness to the whole community. Our dilemma is this. If each parish processes with the Blessed Sacrament in its own monstrance, what happens when we converge and have two monstrances and two hosts? How do we mm-hmm. properly handle that? I, this is a great question. I have no idea. This is why we need Chris around. Or maybe you just put the two hosts in the same monstrance from then on. I don't know. What do you do? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess first you'd say, if you to try to find the answer to this, you go to the ritual book that explains this. And it's called Holy Communion, Worship of the Eucharist Outside of Mass. And I think uh, there's a second one coming out, maybe by year's end. Uh, and I think it's called The Mystery of the Eucharist uh, Outside of Mass or something. Like that. The title is a little bit different. It's a little more spiritual. Anyway, that's where you would start. Well, if you go to that book, you're not going to find an answer to this situation. What, what the book envisions is that you go from A to B. Or next case scenario, you would just... You would go from A and then you would process around and you would go back to the same place that you started. But it doesn't envision going from two different places and meeting in the middle. So you kind of have to think, well, if that's what we're going to do, if that's the best sort of logistical solution, then what do you do? I don't know. I think um, you could. I, I actually think, Dennis, what you suggested might be the best is you take uh, the the host out of one of the monstrances and you could put it into the into the Luna or Lunette uh, with the second one, and you would just have one monstrance with two consecrated hosts. Um, either that, or you would just have to take one of the two monstrances back immediately to one of the other parishes, something like that. But I sort of think the first one, if you couldn't do go to point A to point B, then maybe the best solution that's creative yet not weird, I don't think it's weird, uh, is to combine the two into um, this because that's the, the monstrance is kind of a display and a reservation of those hosts. And so it would be forming its, it would be carrying out its proper function. So yeah, that might be a good idea, Dennis. Hey, All right. Thanks. Rex, I hope that answers your question. If you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God, God bless. bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael, Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan, First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey, Shrivam, and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>